asking the right question can greatly impact your future. So are you working with a certified financial planner, a CFP professional? Certified financial planner certification is the standard of excellence in financial planning. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Today on Inside Politics, Texas Hold'em. Right now, Joe Biden and Donald Trump are both on their way to the southern border. Both are now trying to go all in on immigration. But who has the best hand on what so many voters say is the most important problem facing this country? Plus, supreme consequences. Team Trump's delay tactic is getting a huge assist from the highest court in the land. Could their decision to hear the former president's immunity claim ultimately lead to a get-out-of-jail-free card? And breaking news out of Gaza. Dozens are dead in chaos after Israeli forces opened fire near a food aid truck. We've got the latest from the region. I'm Dana Bash. Let's go behind the headlines and inside politics. We start in Texas, where we are about to see a made-for-TV split-screen moment. The two inevitable presidential nominees are visiting two different southern border towns at the same time. For President Biden, today marks a dramatic shift. The White House is trying to turn a political vulnerability into an opportunity to hammer Republicans for tanking a bill that addressed the crisis, all because Trump said so. CNN has full team coverage across Texas. Priscilla Alvarez is in Brownsville, where Joe Biden is heading. And Kristen Holmes is in Eagle Pass, where Donald Trump will arrive at any moment. Let's start with Priscilla. Priscilla, what can you tell us about what to expect? Well, clearly, Dana, the White House and Biden campaign officials see an opportunity here to seize on an issue that up until this point, the White House had really kept at a distance. And today we expect President Biden to hammer Republicans over that failed Senate border bill that included some of the toughest border security measures in recent memory. Now, of course, this coming from an administration that has grappled with a number of surges at the U.S. southern border, and that sources tell me has really been a tense topic of discussion within the walls of the White House as this became uh, a political liability for President Biden. So what we're expecting today is more on that failed Senate border bill. That was one that White House officials worked very closely with Senate negotiators to find a compromise, including, for example, including an extraordinary authority that uh, would have allowed the Homeland Security Secretary to shut down the border if certain triggers were met. So we'll expect to hear more on that from the president today and really putting the onus on Republicans for not put, uh, putting a solution on the table. But this comes at a critical time. We're in the presidential election and a Gallup poll released this week showed that this issue of immigration is increasingly becoming one that is a priority for many voters. And so the president is urgently trying to address this and really flip the script on Republicans. Priscilla, thank you so much for that. I appreciate that reporting. Now let's go elsewhere in Texas. Kristen Holmes is in Eagle Pass. Kristen, you have been talking to the Trump campaign as usual. What do we expect to see and hear from the former president? Well, Dana, there's a reason that Donald Trump is choosing Eagle Pass. It's not because it's the area that most migrants are crossing, but it really has become the political focal point of this standoff between Texas Governor Greg Abbott and the Biden White House over who is in charge of securing the border. Know that Abbott has used state resources here in this location to put razor wire on buoys in the middle of the Rio Grande River, to put razor wire on trains. And we expect Donald Trump to be here with the Texas governor at some points of his trip to tour some of what he has done to implement this kind of security measures that so-called security measures on the border at the 
part to look at here is that, of course, Donald Trump wants to make a general election with Joe Biden all about immigration. It's something that he ran on in 2015. It really helped carry him into the White House in 2016. And it's something he's made a core part of his campaign, already promising mass deportations if he was elected back to the White House. He previewed some of his speech uh, in his talking last night. Take a listen. As president, I will carry out the largest domestic deportation operation in American history to remove Joe Biden's illegals and murderers, because that's what many of them are. So not surprising there, Donald Trump using that fear-stoking rhetoric. It's something, again, we have seen since 2015, and you should <coughs> expect to hear that. We've already heard, uh, seen statements from the Trump campaign blasting Biden, connecting him to various crimes that were allegedly committed by migrants. So that is something to watch again today. That's something they want to do. Again, this is what he wants to be running on. Dana. Kristen Holmes at a very windy Eagle Pass, Texas. Thank you so much for that. Now, the border crisis is, of course, dominating politics this election cycle, especially on the airwaves. Check out this figure. Campaigns and super PACs on both sides of the aisle have spent nearly $52 million on immigration-themed ads. That's far and away more than anything else. I want to bring in my great panel on this and more, CNN's Gloria Borger, Semaphore's Dave Weigel, and Zolan Kanu-Youngs of The New York Times. Nice to see you all. Um, Gloria Borger, does that uh, eye-popping figure surprise you or maybe not given how high of a priority it seems to be for voters? Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me. And it's going to grow and it's going to grow. I mean, the Republicans believe they have an advantage. One of the last polls I looked at said Donald Trump had a 35-point advantage over, over Joe Biden on the immigration issue. It's, it's going, you know, everybody thought, oh, this election's going to be, it's inflation, you know, it's all about the economy. And suddenly, not so suddenly, mm-hmm. immigration is creeping up to the, to the top of the charts. The Democrats now finally feel they can fight a little bit on the issue because the immigration bill was killed. Uh, by Republicans, but they have a lot of catching up to do, and Joe Biden knows it, and yeah. that's why he's there. Yeah, catching up to do. They're trying to begin that catch-up in the form of a mobile billboard uh, that the DNC, the Democratic National Party, uh, is sending down to Eagle Pass today. And I want to show our viewers an ad which gives a sense of what that billboard is going to say. There is chaos, there's confusion, there's conflicting messages that are surrounding the Trump border policies. They're blaming it on me. I said, that's okay, please blame it on me. Please. Dave, that's exactly Gloria's point, that Mm -hmm. Democrats are trying to uh, turn it on, uh, the issue on its head. The obvious question is whether or not it's going to work considering that President Biden is the guy at the helm of the federal government right now. Well, that's right. And the entire issue has moved in Trump's direction since Joe Biden was sworn in. This 2015, 2016 were mentioned. The support for a wall on the Mexican border was not as high then as it is now. And the, the meta argument that Trump can make everywhere is, did you see as much footage uh, of migrants trying to cross the border of asylum seekers in New York when I was president? You did not. That That's a set of facts that 
the president needs to change. He also has a less united party than, than Donald Trump does. I was talking to the newest member of Congress, Tom Swazi, somebody who, that, that figure of the immigration ads, a lot will run against him. And I asked him this morning, all right, the mayor of New York wants to revisit sanctuary policy and have ICE interdict uh, migrants arrested who are being charged with crime. Should they? He said yes. That, again, is not the Democratic position. Yeah. So they're very fractured on this, and a couple of ads are probably not going to fix that. Solon, you've done a lot of reporting on this, uh, including and especially from the border. Mm -hmm. what, um, what are your thoughts as you watch these two men head down there at the same time? I mean, I think this is a day where you're going to see two uh, leaders of the party engage in, uh, to an extent, political theater and use what has incre the border, which has increasingly become a backdrop uh, for what is becoming one of the pressing issues in this political battle. But um, whether or not you see any actual solutions uh, to what is a, a worsening humanitarian crisis, I think, is also a question moving forward. Um, the number of, cro of illegal crossings have doubled uh, since the Trump administration. You often don't hear this from the Trump campaign. Yes, Biden has overseen a record number of crossings. You know the president who oversaw the second most? It was the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. This global migration problem is only getting worse here. And the difficult thing here, when you look at President Biden, is he's going to go, and as we talk about them trying to go on the offensive, try and say, well, look, the House Republicans sank what would have been a, legi a legislative solution uh, for this crisis. Whether or not that resonates uh, more effectively than Trump stoking divisions with this issue, mm. Trump pointing to images of overcrowded uh, uh, facilities and, and, and exhausting resources in cities led by Democrats and Republicans, that's the challenge here. You kind of have like a sophisticated legislative argument going up against the usual sort of stoking of divisions. And, 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 and Gloria, as you come in here, that language has been remarkably consistent right. from Donald Trump. We were talking before coming on the show. I went with candidate Trump uh, pre-presidency uh, in July of 2015 down to the border, his first trip there. Look at and listen to the rhetoric that he used then versus more recently. There's great danger with the illegals, and we're just discussing that, but we have a tremendous danger on the border with the illegals coming in. If you allow these massive numbers of illegals in, you're gonna have a crime wave, the likes of which has never been seen. It's now starting. Well, you know, right since he came down the escalator at, at, at Trump Tower, he's been talking about uh, uh, illegal immigrants, as rapists, et cetera, et cetera. That has not changed about, about Donald Trump. I mean, I think the problem that Joe Biden has now is that his party, if he had, if, if that bill had passed, mm -hmm. he would have had a lot of progressives in his party really upset about it because of the asylum provisions and everything else. Donald Trump has a united Republican base on this that's very strong, not only the base, but the party. And and Joe Biden has to walk, a, still has to walk a fine line. I'm so glad you mentioned that because when you were talking, Dave, about the fractured Republicans uh, on this issue, you, sorry, you were talking Fractured about the Democrats, Democrats yeah, on this yeah, issue, yeah. forgive me. Um, I was thinking about exactly that, about mm -hmm. like the Pramila Jayapals of the world who said that uh, their party is falling into a trap. Right. Another border state, California, there are three Democrats in Congress running for Senate. All of them have said they would, they would oppose this border deal. The, the, the existence of this deal is, is offensive to a lot of the immigration groups that endorsed Biden, that protested Biden, that called right. Barack Obama the deporter-in-chief. They're very divided on this, and that's not fixed by the bill passing or not passing. Right. 
Got 10 uh, seconds. Uh, all of this, I think, is, is speaking to a seismic shift in immigration politics. You would usually see Republicans emphasizing border security, Democrats willing to trade border security for legalization. We have not mentioned legalization once here because right. these two leaders of the party, yeah. it seems to be absent from their message here. Okay, coming up, it's about to get ruthless around here. I'm going to talk with the popular podcast hosts about the race to replace their former boss, Mitch McConnell, and whether the Senate could be getting a, quote, MAGA makeover. But first, Donald Trump's delay tactics seem to be working as the Supreme Court makes it more likely than ever that the federal election subversion trial won't happen before November. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So are you working with a certified financial planner, a CFP professional who meets rigorous education, training, and ethical standards and is committed to serving your best interests to prepare you for a more secure future? Certified Financial Planner Certification is the standard of excellence in financial planning. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. In a very busy week for Donald Trump's legal challenges, the former president got one piece of really good news yesterday, that the Supreme Court will take up his immunity appeal, which keeps his January 6th criminal case on pause. I want to welcome CNN legal analyst Elliot Williams, and Gloria is still here with us. Elliot, um, what does it all mean? <laughs> I don't that's know, not a, Dana. That's not I, a I meta don't question. Know what it all means. No, um, uh, what it means is that the trial is not it's not going to trial next month, yeah. as uh, as could have happened. Uh, it was scheduled. Now, it's a question of what the court actually does. Now, I don't think there's any serious question that once the court takes it up, they, they end up with a similar decision to what the Court of Appeals decided. You think so? I, yeah, when they take it up, which is that a former president uh, is, or a president is not immune from prosecution from acts. And that's not going to happen. The, the hearing is April. Right. The hearing's in April, right? Um, in some way, that decision probably gets written. Now, the question of how they get there uh, is an open one. And I, I think it's hard to see how they bring this to trial prior to the 2024 election. It's just the math. It could work, but it would be very challenging to do. Could they, but they could start the trial. We don't they could start. The, they could absolutely start yeah. a trial. They could absolutely start a trial. Because here's what would happen. The Supreme Court would rule sometime probably in June. Could be before that, but likely at the end of the Supreme Court term. Then, th assuming they ruled against the the former president, they could the the court the trial court could start proceedings for getting ready for trial and get to trial by the summer. Let's oh, talk good. about the, in the middle of the Republican convention. Well, exactly. How about and, that? And, and right. not just that. I think you started to mention this, uh, Gloria, before. Uh, what voters want, and uh, in the latest poll that we have here on that question uh, from CNN, forty eight percent say that uh, the timing of Trump's federal trial is essential right. before the election. Well, it wouldn't be the first time the Supreme Court went against something that was uh, the, uh, different from public opinion. Uh, and public opinion wants answers and wants a decision on these, on these issues. And the fact that now this is on a slow track, maybe even a glacial 
pace, we don't know how the Supreme Court's going to move, means more and more that you're not going to get any decision before an election. And I think voters, as that poll shows, would like to know. I just think there's two very different questions here. How fast do voters want the Supreme Court to move? And how does the Supreme Court typically move under normal this circumstances? This isn't typical or normal. Well, well fine, but, but even still bringing it, they could have waited until next year to bring this up. They could have waited until the next Supreme Court term started in October, but they put it on the calendar for this year. I'm not defending the Supreme yeah. Court at all here. You're explaining but, it. Yeah, no, I'm explaining it. But the simple fact is, you know, typically a case that came before them this late in the calendar year would probably be bumped to October. Right. And I, but I, I guess yeah. what, what Gloria is saying, what we're all saying, and I know you agree with, is it's impossible to divorce the political strategy uh, that yeah. is the same as the legal strategy of Donald Trump, which is delay, delay, delay. He hopes that he becomes, uh, he gets elected and maybe, and inaugurated and this whole thing goes away. Yeah. Um, Joan Biskupic, our colleague, said it, I think, in a very succinct way. The former president's strategy of trying to delay the four criminal trials, this is even beyond what we're talking about, against him is well-documented. And in fighting special counsel Jack Smith's case, the Supreme Court has become an ally of sorts despite the expedited schedule. Right. You know, uh, this is an expedited schedule according to the Supreme Court. Right. It's not an expedited schedule according to anything else. And what they have done is played into the hands of Donald Trump's attorneys because it's not just their legal strategy. It is their only strategy. Because I just had a conversation with a, a, someone who used to represent Donald Trump who said, look, they don't expect to win in the Supreme Court. The only way to win is to delay and, and hope that Donald Trump gets elected, and then it's totally off the books because he says so. So that's, that's the entire strategy, and this just plays into it. I mean, Judge Chutkin in D.C. really wanted to move on this case. Yeah. It's, Next it, week. One of the first things you learn in law school is there's a difference between procedure and law. Mm -hmm. And the procedure can count as law. If something right. takes a long time procedurally, sort of lay folks call it technicalities, but when things take a long time, that can have the same effect of, of, of giving parties what they want. I feel like spending time with you is like going to law school. Uh, <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. Yeah. We learn a lot. Uh, from both of you. It depends how soul-crushing spending time with me I, is. I'm not. Gloria's not a lawyer. She just plays one on TV. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I'm a court watcher. There you go. Coming up, we are following breaking news. A horrific, chaotic incident on the ground in Gaza. 100 people were killed and nearly 800 injured. We're going to go live to the region next. Breaking news today out of the Middle East, a horrific scene near Gaza City where chaos erupted after Israeli forces opened fire as civilians were trying to get food from aid trucks. You can see from this surveillance video as the crowd gathers and then quickly disperses. I want to get straight to CNN's Jeremy Diamond. Jeremy, I know you've been watching all of these uh, videos from different angles, surveillance video. You've been talking to sources inside Gaza. What have you learned? Well, Dana, let's start with what eyewitnesses on the ground are telling us, and that is that early this morning, before dawn, in fact, a convoy of aid trucks crossed into western Gaza City after passing an Israeli military checkpoint. Crowds of people, hundreds of people, quickly swarmed those trucks, uh, climbing on top of them, grabbing what they could. Uh, Khader Al-Zanun, a local journalist who I spoke with on the phone, told me that minutes after that, the Israeli military then opened fire. And it was that gunfire, he says, uh, that 
triggered a mass pandemonium with people running away and the truck drivers also speeding off and in the process uh, killing uh, additional uh, people. Now, uh, the Palestinian Ministry of Health says that 104 people were killed in this incident altogether, 760 injured. According to Khader al-Zanun, uh, the majority of those people were indeed killed by those trucks speeding off, but it was the Israeli gunfire, according to him and other eyewitnesses on the ground, that prompted this scene of mass pandemonium. The Israeli military has a very different narrative. They agree that these trucks passed through, that people climbed on top of them, but they say that a stampede started before any Israeli gunfire. Here's Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner just moments ago. We understand that the, the convoy passed through the Israeli positions uh, and continued to move forward and continued to move north. Um, as they move forward, a amount of people, um, a huge amount of people, as we clearly shared in the visuals that we distributed, um, stormed the, and stampeded the, the truckloads. As they climbed upon, they were pushing, they were shoving, people were trampled and also run over. And so you see there, he is trying to indicate that these are two completely separate incidents, that in one other incident near this convoy, a group of Palestinians approached the Israeli forces in a threatening manner, according to the Israeli military, and they were fired upon. I've looked at all of the video that the Israeli military has provided, that drone footage. You don't see in this footage uh, mass numbers of people getting run over by trucks or stampeding. What you see is them coming, clambering onto these trucks, rushing to try and get this desperately needed aid. But it doesn't show what uh, Lerner uh, suggested there. And it's also just important to keep in mind that this all comes in the context of about a half a million people in northern Gaza who are currently on the brink of famine. It is that desperation. It is the fact that so few aid trucks have been able to get into northern Gaza that has led us to this very deadly, very sad situation that we are witnessing today. Dana. Uh, Jeremy, sad. It just is... Now, it doesn't even begin to describe it. Senator Chris Coons, who is a very big supporter of Israel, just told Wolf Blitzer uh, in the last hour that he is uh, going to support conditions for any further U.S. aid unless Israel comes up with a plan to end this war before going into Rafah. Really interesting. Great reporting, Jeremy. Thank you. Uh, the White House says President Biden spoke this morning with leaders of Egypt and Qatar. And a short time ago, he was asked about the state of ceasefire negotiations. Hope springs eternal. I was on the telephone with the people in the region. I'm still, probably not by Monday, but I'm hopeful. Did you know in Gaza City, more than 100 civilians were killed? I just, we're checking that out right now. There's two, there's two competing versions of what happened. I don't have an answer yet. Are you worried about complications negotiations? I know, Will. I want to get straight to CNN's chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward. Clarissa, I was listening to our colleague, Alex Marquardt, this morning. He put it really well and in a concise way. He said this incident could either propel uh, these ceasefire talks quickly or derail them quickly. What are you hearing? Well, I think that's exactly right. I mean, we are hearing from a senior Hamas official that these the incident this morning, the horrifying incident this morning, really does have the potential to complicate or possibly derail these talks altogether. You just played that clip of President Biden saying he also acknowledges the very real possibility that this will uh, complicate those efforts. At the same time, given the horrifying nature of this incident and given the fact 
fact that aid organizations have been warning and shouting from the rooftops about the capacity and potential for an incident like this because of the desperation that you heard uh, Jeremy Diamond describing there. I think there is also uh, some optimism potentially or hope that perhaps this could be a watershed moment, that perhaps uh, the White House is publicly now beginning to acknowledge that this policy of publicly supporting Israel while privately trying to apply as much pressure as possible has not been entirely effective in reducing the number of civilian casualties and in preventing an all-out hum humanitarian catastrophe. And again, as you heard Jeremy said, uh, we are now on one step away, according from the UN, from an actual famine. The implications of that, both politically for President Biden going into the election, but also geopolitically on the global stage, this is becoming a huge stain for America to continue uh, to support this without trying to implement sufficient rigor to stop events like this from taking place, to ensure uh, the unfettered and free access of aid workers to this area. And every aid worker I have spoken to, Dana, says the same thing, which is it is just not possible to do that unless you have some type of a ceasefire that really would allow that aid to get to the places where it needs to the most. Because not only is not enough aid getting in, the aid that is getting in is stuck in the south. It's very hard to get it to the north. The situation right. is so desperate there. And then you have this lawlessness and looting and things of this nature, Dana. Clarissa, thank you so much. It's great to have you on to give your reporting and your insights. Appreciate it. Back here in Washington, the race to succeed Mitch McConnell is already in full swing. We'll talk to some of McConnell's confidants who are here. They're also hosts of the popular podcast, Ruthless. You don't want to miss this. Stay with us. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Senator John Cornyn of Texas is wasting no time in his bid to succeed Republican leader Mitch McConnell. He made it official this morning, saying he thinks the Senate is broken and he, quote, intends to play a major role in fixing it. Cornyn is one of three clear frontrunners for the job, all of them, interestingly, named John. But some of the newer and younger senators in the Republican Party there say that they're eager for a break from the past. Listen to Josh Hawley with Manu Raju this morning. How much do you want to see a break from Mitch McConnell? Total break. Yep. What does that I mean? mean? Well, it means an end to the machine politics that have dominated the Senate in his tenure. It means an end to the corporate money that he has turned on like a geyser that has flowed into the Senate. It's flowed into, frankly, the Republican Party. Joining me now to talk about all of this and much more, four fellas who know a thing or two about Republican politics, especially Mitch McConnell, the hosts of the Ruthless podcast, Josh Holmes, 
John Ashbrook, Michael Duncan, and the man you will see here with his sunglasses on, known as Comfor <laughs> Comfortably Smug. Uh, we're going to get to that whole situation in a second. Uh, Josh, I want to start with you. Uh, I know you were eager to respond to, um, to, to Josh Hawley, and I should sort of set the table by saying um, all of you, most of you, are very close with Mitch McConnell, have worked for Mitch McConnell, you, you especially, Josh. Correct. No, um, I have. I thought it was a sort of a classless response in many ways. Um, look, Josh Hawley is one of the many members of the United States Senate that basically wouldn't be there without the efforts of Mitch McConnell. I find it particularly interesting. Smug and I were talking about this uh, earlier today where yeah, I mean, well, the largest spender in Hawley's previous election was SLF, <laughs> Connell Super PAC, which spent $21 million to elect Josh Hawley. So yeah, so that machine politics worked pretty well for him, uh, evidently, but now it's problematic. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. It, let's just talk for a second about Senator McConnell. And his, his speech happened at this time, as we're talking right now, yesterday. Uh, and it was pretty, pretty remarkable, uh, the, the kinds of things that he uh, was saying. One of the many wonderful lines that he gave that were very Mitch McConnell uh, was this. Let's listen. Believe me, I know the politics within my party at this particular moment in time. I have many faults. Misunderstanding politics is not one of them. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the difficult thing about working for a guy like Mitch McConnell is when you work on his campaign, he's the chief strategist. Um, this is a man who has studied politics from a very young age. If you ever read his book, uh, it talks about his old race for student council right. <laughs> and holding grudges with a guy for 30 years because he voted against him. Um, so, no, I mean, I don't think anybody's confused about whether Mitch McConnell understands politics. Well, and, and the point he was trying to make, and you guys, please correct me if I'm wrong, is that if you look at the big issues that he's working on now or has worked on just this Congress, right now he's pushing for Ukraine aid. Uh, he helped to get through uh, the bipartisan infrastructure bill. He tried and failed to get a, an immigration bill done. That's not where the base of his party is. And mm -hmm. so is that part of him saying, I'm, I'm out of here? Or, I mean, I know that there are a lot of factors, but that's kind of the point he was trying to make there. I don't know, Dana, you, you worked up there for a really long time, mm -hmm. so you know as well as anybody that the idea that there's actually a leader in the Senate is a little bit of a misnomer. I think this is one of the things that is really the secret to his success is he understands the place better than anybody else. You have 100 people who look in the mirror and see a president looking back at them. And one of the jokes that McConnell always made is that he felt like he was the caretaker, the, or the groundskeeper at a graveyard, that everybody was under him, but nobody was listening. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of truth in that statement. And I think that his understanding of the chamber and his understanding of the members and what they want was really the key to his longevity. Yeah, if I could add, Dan. Yeah, please. So what he was talking about very specifically in that was a reflection of how he came about during the Reagan revolution and this idea that the inextricable link to America being the leader of the free world was something that he still deeply believes in. And so when he was talking about the politics, he was very specifically talking about that national security aid package that he'd worked so hard to try to get across the finish line, despite some in his party having grave reservations about Ukraine and everything else. And so I think it's very specifically to the world stage, to, to America's stage. role in the world. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's good to know. Well, I mean, I think also just tying all of this together is this is a very long legacy 
He's been doing a tremendous amount of work for a very long time. I saw a journalist tweet the other day that if Chuck Schumer had confirmed three Supreme Court justices, they'd invite the island of Manhattan after him. <laughs> and I think so much of our politics now is just in the, in the second, in the moment, that folks forget how many Republicans were cheering when we got three uh, Supreme Court justices in four years. That was a tremendous accomplishment. What about this whole idea of a magnified Senate? That um, Josh Hawley, he might have gotten the help of, of Mitch McConnell. He did get the help of Mitch McConnell and Mitch McConnell's allies to get elected. But people like him are very much in line with and eager to please Donald Trump and his and his base. And that wasn't the case not that long ago in the Senate. That was the House. The Senate was different. Not anymore. Yeah, you know, I find that leadership elections, if you're trying to figure out who's winning and who's losing, you don't listen to the people who are talking all the time. Mm. What you do is find the rest of them that are not, because the truth is there's about nine in the Senate currently that have had a lot to say about direction of leadership, direction of the Senate, where the Senate is. And then there's, you know, 40 others that are sitting around, you know, thinking about this meeting with the John Cornyns and Barrasso's and Thunes and trying to figure out what's best for this conference going forward. And so, look, I think it's going to play out over a period of time. There's no question that the president has influence within the party. I mean, he's going to be the nominee of the party. But I think in terms of how you actually elect a Republican leader of the Senate, a little bit more inside baseball than that. What do you guys think? Who's got the upper hand? Which of the Johns? Oh, gosh. Well, we have a John ourselves. Maybe yeah. we'll put <laughs> I think it's... I think unlike the speaker, you actually have to be a senator. To be yeah, a right. <laughs> it's, just, it's way too early to know. I mean, it's way too... And there, there's also talk about maybe another person emerging oh, later yeah? on in the game, and you know, player yeah. to be named later. So it is just so early to know. Cornyn's the only guy who's officially announced yeah. at this point. But you know that these games are played out on the inside level. And, mm -hmm. and here's the other thing. Republicans have not had this sort of situation for a long time you remember 17 years yeah, you remember 2007 uh -huh. and it was a little bit more chaotic than it is today and i think that we're sort of edging into a brand new time for a lot of people who weren't there in 07. i think it, it's chaotic now <laughs> no. i just we had seen nothing oh, fantastic uh we have much more with the four hosts of the ruthless podcast up next it turns out their name, Ruthless, came from watching this very show. We're going to explain it after a break. We're back with my guests, the co-hosts of the Ruthless podcast. Um, Ruthless, the name Ruthless, there are a lot of uh, theories about where it came from, but we have the facts right here on Inside Politics. It came from this show. John King was the host. He was talking to uh, a man we all know and revere, Carl Hulse, with The New York Times. I should mention again, you are all either, well, former Mitch McConnell staffers, all advisors. Listen to what happened on that show. This is July 2019. Mitch McConnell and his people are ruthless. They're, not just, they're not just ruthless. They're sarcastically funny ruthless. And thus a podcast is born. Sarcastically, sarcastically ruthless. I mean, yeah. Well, we thought there was a real hole in the marketplace in terms of just lighter content and consuming very serious issues, obviously, yeah. but doing it with a sense of humor. And, you know, obviously we come at things from the right side. So we're unapologetic about having a conservative bent. 
But we like to have fun with things. And if you can't laugh along with what's happening in American politics, like you'll start crying pretty quickly. And so that's kind of how it all came together. So uh, just going back to something in the last block that you said about the courts, I think that it's important to sort of underline this because I mentioned this when we were in the breaking news this time yesterday. Um, you guys correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think that there is a legacy that Mitch McConnell cares more about than what he did to pack the courts. Um, and that is despite him working with Democrats on a lot of things, what makes Democrats the most <laughs> mad, not just the uh, federal, the district and the circuit courts, but the Supreme Court. And the biggest thing he did, which was taking harpoon after harpoon uh, from really angry Democrats about not giving Merrick Garland, Barack Obama's nominee, a hearing. Mm -hmm. And that helped shape the, the course of history that led us to three Trump nominees. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it really did. 200 judges, that's a lot of judges. And what he did with Merrick Garland was, I mean, historic. And what he did was something that I don't think a lot of other Republican leaders, if they were in his position, would have been able he to. He got do. a lot of criticism. Did, was there, okay, you guys have an inside view. Here, here's did the, he care? Here, here's the inside scoop. Yeah. Is that if you criticize Mitch McConnell, he prints it off and he puts it on his wall. Wow. That is Quite literally. I mean, that's the definition of ruthless. Yeah, yeah. quite literally yeah. puts it on his wall. No, I mean, this is a guy with a spine of steel. Uh, you don't have that job for as long as he had it, leading a conference that can be as right. you know, difficult as it can be at times, unless you've got that spine of steel. Yeah. Well, also, I think it's clear to say he didn't pack the court. They were confirmed duly, stayed at the number <laughs> yes, nine, right. which is important. He made it a priority to get those nominees. Absolutely. And there's a movement that's happening currently to try and pack the court. And I think that would be absolutely disastrous. Smug, that's a really good point that you're, you're making there. Because the one thing that we were talking earlier about what happens after Mitch McConnell uh -huh. in the United States Senate. I do worry about one thing, and that is less you know, people in charge who care about the institution itself. Mm. And primarily the filibuster, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, the Democrats won a huge Senate race in Arizona with Kirsten Sinema. They ran her out of the party because she wouldn't yeah. overturn the filibuster. Yeah, mm -hmm. well, and other things, too. Yeah. But yeah, well, yeah. Um, I have to we're, we're almost out of time. I have to get to immigration. Mm -hmm. Former president, uh, current president heading down to the border today. We were talking about this in, the, in a break. Could you imagine uh, during my time covering the Senate, you were all uh, working in the Senate where there was a bipartisan bill that was as um, as tough on immigration, tough on the border, as uh, the Democrats approved as the one that uh, was negotiating, negotiated, and then was killed by Donald Trump and his allies? Yeah, well, look, I think immigration is one of those issues, as you well know. I mean, I remember doing it in 05 and 07 and 12, and I mean, it comes up all the time. It's one of those issues to Republicans like entitlements are to Democrats, where whatever solution that you've come to, it's never going to be good enough. And the problem is it's a very thorny issue, but it used to always be that any sort of border security you were able to obtain, the price of admission was some sort of an amnesty component mm -hmm. to that. Yeah, correct. Exactly. That's now moved. And, you know, Democrats have come, I think, out of po political necessity. Because, look, I, I mean, I'm of the belief that Joe Biden could do most of this on his own if he wanted to. But a po political necessity, they've come yeah. way towards Republicans on it. Real quick, McConnell unmoored. You said he's now going to be unmoored. What does that look like? <laughs> I think it's going to be a lot of fun to find out. Wow. I mean, okay. <laughs> we're, we're buckling up for that. I should also say I, I, another, a little inside scoop. Uh, that speech that he gave, I know you worked on it. You wrote it. Uh, it, was, it was a really fascinating speech. Yeah, hard to take credit. Just basically translating a man's thoughts and his authentic yeah. message that he wanted to deliver.
Okay. Uh, please come back. Great yeah, conversation. Of we have so much more to talk about. Also, Smug. Yes. That's your, I'm, I'm guessing your parents didn't give you that name? That's what I'm known okay. as. Well. And it makes okay. me and okay. everyone else. And you have to come back because we're running out of time to get a discussion Absolutely about the sunglasses. Well. Okay. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for joining Inside Politics. CNN News Central starts after the break. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So are you working with a certified financial planner? a CFP professional who meets rigorous education, training, and ethical standards and is committed to serving your best interests to prepare you for a more secure future? Certified Financial Planner Certification is the standard of excellence in financial planning. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.